Now, I'm looking forward to today's message. Today, I'm starting a new series called Modern Family, a seat at the table. Now, you might think Modern Family is kind of a strange title for a sermon series, especially if you're a TV watcher. I wonder why you're calling your series uh, Modern Family. But also considering that I've been talking a lot lately about what our church is going to look like in the future, it might seem strange too. Why am I naming this series Modern Family when I'm talking about the future of the church and the future of our church? It might seem like I should do a sermon series called Future Church. That seems like that might be a little bit better idea, but I actually don't think it would be a good idea to do a series called Future Church. I don't think that would actually be a good title, and I also think it could be a little bit misleading because the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about building a church. I think people are kind of surprised sometimes that the Bible doesn't really give a good description on how to plant a church. There's not a big chapters and verses in the Bible of you plant a church, do it this way. The Bible really doesn't say much about that. In fact, Jesus only brings up church twice in the Gospels. I think it's kind of surprising. You'd think Jesus would bring it up a whole lot more, that he'd have a lot more instruction to church planters and church pastors, but he doesn't. He brings it up twice. The first time he brings it up is in the context of conflict. And he says the church will prevail, it will be successful. And the next time Jesus brings it up, he says, I'm the one who's going to build it. Those kind of interesting words of Jesus, he says, I'll build the church. He doesn't give that duty over to the pastors and say, you build the church. He doesn't give that to the people of the church and you build it. He doesn't give that as part of the fivefold ministry, say, okay, apostles, you build the church. Jesus says, no, I'm the one who's going to do that. You kind of expect Jesus as the one who would say, you all build it. And I think a lot of times we as people think that our job and our posture should be to build the church. So a lot of times we like to come up with really good programs. We like to come up with really good things that would attract people to come to church. Not that any of that is bad, but so often when we focus on building the church, we neglect to do what Jesus has called us to do. Jesus has called us to be disciples and make disciples. It's pretty simple. That's why there's not big books of the Bible, how to plant a church and how to organize a church and how to draw people. Because he said, I want you to do one thing, y'all be disciples. And then as you become a disciple, I want you to help other people to become disciples. So that's why I don't want to do a sermon series called Future Church, because I think it gets us in the mindset of we're going to have to build this church. I told you in a couple weeks or so, I want to take a Sunday and just say, hey, let's throw out some ideas of what we should do, maybe some vision ideas. But I don't want to do that until we step back and say, what is the purpose of the church? And that is to make disciples. I think over the years we got so infatuated with churches having a fancy mission statement or fancy purpose statement that we forgot the simple fact that we are called to do one thing only, and that is to make disciples. That's what the Great Commission is all about. Go and make disciples. It didn't say go and plant big churches. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But it said to make disciples. And so often in our attempt to build the church, we actually build uh, entertainment centers for people to to become consumers instead of becoming disciples. Some of you know that I like Dallas Willard a lot. I think a lot of you like Dallas Willard. He's this famous, uh, famous Christian philosopher, pastor, professor. He kind of put a big stamp on the church saying, you got to talk about spiritual formation a lot. 
Dallas Willard says that every church needs to be able to answer two questions. That's it. Question number one, do you have a plan to make disciples? Number two, how's your plan working? Only two questions that a church needs to ask. Do you have a plan to make disciples and how's your plan working? That's the question that I need to answer. Do I have a plan and does Lake Effect have a plan to help people become really good disciples? And is that plan working? Now, to be honest, I don't think I have that good of a plan. I don't think I have that good of a structure set up to help us to understand how do we become disciples and how do we help other people become better disciples? So as we're talking about the future, the part of our future has to be how do we make effective disciples? So in this series, as we are talking about our future, we are going to talk about how do you make effective disciples? Now, to make effective disciples isn't some formula that we say, hey, you're going to do these five things and poof, you'll be an authentic disciple. To be a disciple is a lifelong journey. The word disciple actually means learner. The word disciple means a lifetime learner of Jesus. This is, we're in it for the long haul. But in order to follow Jesus, in order to become a disciple, there's certain different practices that become part of your life. We need to focus on those and we need to highlight those as a church of what we think is really important. For example, one thing really important is prayer. We all have to know how to pray if we're a follower of Jesus. Another thing is we need to learn how to read scripture and those things that we do. But then there's other things that we need to do like learn how to forgive other people. Those are some things that maybe you don't do on a daily basis, but occasionally you need to lean into that practice. The same thing is we all have to learn how to settle issues from our past. So as we move forward, we're going to highlight different key components that help us to be effective disciples, that we can learn to participate in these different practices, because that is going to be determine how we will become genuine disciples. Dallas Willard goes on to say that one of the most significant issues of our time was rather people who identify as Christians would actually become apprentices or disciples of Jesus. He says, one of the greatest needs of the church was the development of a curriculum for Christ-likeness. That is what we want to focus on. What is our pathway? What are practices so we become more and more like Christ? See, this whole series that we're in is going to be helping us to become like Christ, not on how to build a church. So over the course of the weeks, we're going to talk about these key components. I appreciate these really wise words of Scott McKnight, a professor. He says, the most common word for church in the New Testament is not, in fact, church. It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not an enterprise either. No, the most common word for church is two words, brothers and sisters. In other words, Jesus came to form you and me into be. In other words, Jesus came to form you and me into siblings in a new family. Church is about a new family. So I think the best way to describe the church in the future is to call it modern family. That's what we're going to become, a modern family that sits at the table with Jesus. So the question at hand is not how do you build a church. The question at hand is how do you build a family that resembles Christ? So that's what we're going to talk about over these next few weeks. See, I think a lot of us have a, a Peter experience in John 13. 
And John 13, verse 7, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and I don't know why it's not the most popular Christian verse. I mean, I think we can retire, live, laugh, love, and what the verse I'm going to share with you needs to be the new poster in everybody's family. We can, we can forget all the little sweatshirts with all the verses. This should be on everybody's sweatshirt. Everybody should have this on your mirror. John 13, verse 7, Jesus says to Peter, you do not understand what I'm doing, but someday you will. I think most of us experience that most days that we're like, I have no idea what Jesus is doing right now. But I'm going to trust that someday I will. A lot of us feel like Peter most days. I have no idea. But see, the problem isn't you don't have no idea. The problem is when you don't really care to figure out what he is doing. That's what we want to be drawn into. So listen to the text in John 13, 1 through 17. Before, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave the world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, why are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, Then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Jesus replied, A person who has been bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said, Not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again. He sat down and asked, Do you understand what I am doing? You call me teacher and Lord, you are right, because that's who I am. And since I am your Lord and teacher, I have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is a messenger more important than the one who sends the message. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. So this is a setting. Disciples are gathered with Jesus for one final meal before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus gathered his disciples to show them love and compassion. See, in Jesus' day, meals were more than a necessity. They're more than just something you have to do because you require food and nutrition. Meals were always a powerful statement of friendship and of community and of family in the Bible. See, in the meals in the Bible, they were gathering together to be family, to be community. And so this meal that they're gathered for, this isn't just any regular meal. This is the Passover meal. And also this is the last meal they'll have together before they, Jesus goes to the cross. And the text tells us two interesting things that Jesus knew. The first thing is that Jesus knew this would be his last meal. Jesus knew that his pathway was, was going to go to the cross and that he would go to the, die on the cross. But he also knew that he had received all the power and authority that he could ever experience, and he had that in his hand. Jesus knew about the future, and he had all the power and authority. And the big question we have is, 
what's Jesus going to do? What would you do if you had all the power of God in your hand and you could do whatever you wanted to do? What is Jesus going to do in his last hours of freedom before he goes to the cross? Jesus is going to use his authority to serve his disciples. He's going to serve them. Jesus knows that his disciples are going to go through a huge roller coaster in the neck of emotions in the next two, three, four days, weeks. He knows that they're going to watch him go to the cross. He knows his disciples are going to experience so many emotions that they're not going to know what to do. So before Jesus goes to the cross, he wants it imprinted on their brain, his compassion, his love. And so Jesus does something interesting. He takes off his outer robe so his disciples can watch him take off his other outer robe and he's going to be left with just a white t-shirt on, a long white t-shirt that probably went to his knees. The exact same thing that a servant would wear in the Roman Empire. Jesus is now is dressing the role in front of his disciples so they can look at him and say, now you're actually dressing like a servant as well. And Jesus bends over and he's going to wash their feet in an act of love and devotion and service for them. But then there's Peter. Peter's like, no way. Nope, you're not going to wash my feet. It's kind of surprising, but it's not surprising. Here, Peter, you've been with Jesus for three years. You've seen him do miracles. You've seen his power. You've seen his obedience. You're pretty much convinced he is the son of God and he's going to wash your feet. And now you decide after three years, it's time to correct Jesus. And to say, nope, you're not washing my feet. There's a good lesson in that story. Because I think we tend to do that. Jesus is orchestrating some big move in our life, something big in our life, and we're like, that doesn't look too familiar, so I'm going to pass on that. Or that doesn't really look like what I expected, so I'm going to take a pass on that. We have a tendency to be like Peter, but fortunately Jesus is kind of persistent and he says something to Peter to get Peter to sit down so he can wash his feet. And then after he gets done washing his feet, he looks at the disciples and he says, do you understand what I'm doing? Do you understand what I'm doing? I think we all need to sit with that question time and time again saying, do I understand what Jesus is doing in my life? Do I understand what Jesus is doing for me? See, I think sometimes we get so busy trying to do things that we forget to just go sit with Jesus and let him serve us and show us his compassion. I think that's what happened to the Peter that night. I think he was so busy doing Jesus stuff that he didn't even know how to sit at a table with Jesus and relax and let Jesus just lead the night. He didn't know how to sit at a table with Jesus and let Jesus serve him a meal and show him love and compassion. Peter thought, I got to be a busy guy instead. See, I think Matthew 11, verse 28, gives us a really good understanding of what Jesus was trying to do that night at the table. Matthew 11 says, Are you weary? Are you carrying a heavy burden? Then come to me. That's why Jesus invited his disciples to the table. He knew they were weary. He knew they were tired. He knew that they all knew something is happening, that something is going to change. Jesus has talked enough about the future. They were heavy laden. 
And Jesus says, I want to refresh your life. For I am your oasis. Simply join your life with mine. Learn my ways and you'll discover that I'm gentle, that I'm humble, that I'm really easy to please. You'll find refreshment and rest in me, for all that I require of you will be pleasant and easy to bear. That's all Jesus wanted to do with his disciples that night. He wanted to show them compassion. He wanted to show them that you hang around with me, it's going to make your life a whole lot easier. He just wanted his disciples to come and be with him. It's interesting. All the other times Jesus says the word come, he says, come follow me. This is the one time in the Gospels that Jesus says, no, just come and be with me. We need to take that invitation of Jesus pretty serious just to come and be with him, to sit at a table with him metaphorically. Not just come and just follow and do the busy stuff, but there's times you need to sit down metaphorically at a table with Jesus and just be with him. To have a discussion with him no different than I would have a discussion with you all after church at a restaurant. There's times we need to do that, and that is what Jesus was calling his disciples to do. See, discipleship is learning how to be with Jesus. Discipleship is learning how to sit at a table with Jesus. But it's also knowing what are you going to do with the grace and the mercy that Jesus has shown you. In Romans 12, verse 1, there's a question. Paul gives a translation as a, as a statement. But you can read Romans 12, verse 1, as a question that would say, what are you going to do with all the grace and mercy that God has shown you? What are you going to do with the compassion that God has shown you? What are you going to do with the restoration that God has shown to you in your life? See, in Romans 12, verse 1 to 2, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, what Paul is getting at here is the renewing of your mind, which can be translated as the renovation of your mind. That's what God's doing with your grace and his mercy. He's renovating your mind. I think all of us have seen enough HGTV, the before and after, the house that you're all saying, knock it down. But no, then you get the one designer who says, renovate it. You're thinking it'll be a whole lot smarter to knock the thing down, but renovate it. And see, that's exactly what the scripture's saying that God and Jesus are doing in your life. They're renovating your mind. In essence, Paul is telling us that Jesus encounters us for the purpose of renovating our mind and our lives so that we would become what? A living sacrifice to God. I don't think we often understand what it means to be a living sacrifice. That's not our typical vernacular. But if you're a first century follower of Jesus, that whole thing about being a living sacrifice, that would, be, that would, that would, that would mean a lot to you. In fact, they're probably pretty comforted by the fact that Jesus said, present your bodies as a living sacrifice because back in those days they knew what a sacrifice was you want to please god you get a bull 
get a lamb, get a pigeon, something, and put it on the altar as a sacrifice. Now Jesus is saying, I want your body up there. Fortunately, he said, living. I want your bodies as a living sacrifice. See, this is so important because our offering of our bodies is all about our behavior. To offer our bodies is to offer our behavior as a sacrifice to God. Our bodies are a sacrifice because of the way we act and we behave. See, the body that Jesus doesn't wants our body, he doesn't just want. See, in the Bible, behavior is more important than outer appearance. Outer appearance really doesn't mean much in the Bible. Everything's about your behavior. I think that's one reason that why the Bible takes such a stance against lust. Because lust is the opposite of what God does. God's not concerned about the outer appearance. He's concerned about your behavior. And Paul's saying, let God transform you in such a way that it changes the way you think, that it changes your heart, it changes everything on the inside, and as you change on the inside, it will impact your behavior. That's the offering that he wants. The question is, sometimes have is, why do we need all of this renovation? Why do we need so much? I like the word, I, I like Titus 3, because Titus will use the word renovation, the Greek word for renovation. Listen to Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what Titus is saying, what we are like. And the truth is, each and every one of us is in the process of getting delivered from these things. It would be nice if you became a Christian, poof, all those things actually went away in one second. But we know that sometimes sanctification takes place over time to get free from some of these. See, this is the renovation work that we're going through. To get rid of these old behaviors to become the new person that Titus 3 verse 7 says. It says, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which what we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, in the middle of this verse, once again is the word renewing. That word renovation. The renovation done by encountering Jesus and the transformation power of the Holy Spirit. Why? So we become more like Christ. So we become the Christ-likeness that we are supposed to become. That's why Romans 8, 29 reminds us, he predestined us to be, for, be conformed to his son. It's wonderful to hear all these great things that God wants to do in our life. To talk about the renovation and the restoration that he wants to do in our life, it's great. But what's our part? What's our part in this process? See, our part is we need to be in the right position. We're not going to make all this thing happen. We have to be in the right position. We have to listen to Jesus' call that says, come to me. Come to me and experience me. 
And when you experience Jesus, it changes every single thing in your life. So how do we do this? That's where discipleship comes in. That's where it comes in that we're going to talk about these various practices that we do on a daily basis or on a seasonal basis to make us become more like Christ. These practices are positions that we put ourselves in to experience the fullness of what God has for us. Today I want to talk about the ancient church practice called a rule of life. I don't know if many of you have heard the ancient practice called a rule of life, but this concept of developing a rule of life goes back to the first century. Some people say in 500 uh, uh, the AD, <laughs> get those letters confused. The 580 that the monks even developed. Some other people say the rule of life goes back to even the early reformers 500 years ago. But whatever it came from, the fact is a rule of life is this ancient practice of structuring your life in such a way that you always put God at the center of your life. The whole purpose of a rule of life is to regulate our lives in such a way that we pursue Jesus above everything else. The whole idea of a rule of life is to help us become disciples and not consumers. Now, I'll be honest with you. Rule of life sounds kind of confusing. When you say rule of life, you tend to have a tendency to think, am I talking about rules of life? Are you making me come up with a bunch of New Year's resolutions I'm supposed to live my life by? Not at all. That's the exact opposite. See, the reason I'm calling it a rule of life is because a lot of people are kind of starting to use that phrase in the vernacular. Do you have a rule of life? See, the rule of life, rule actually comes from the Latin word regula, which is often referred to as to regulate. The word regula is also refers to a trellis. This is where it comes into what we're doing. John 15 is all about you are the vine, Jesus saying you are the vine, I'm the branches, abide in me. The whole idea of a trellis is to pick up a vine off the ground so it can flourish. The whole idea of developing a rule of your life is to pick you up off the ground so you can flourish. A rule of life is not about setting up rules for your life, it's about identifying rhythms in your life, identifying practices in your life. Things that you would do on a daily basis to help you to be successful. The fact is, all of us have a bunch of rules of life that we abide by every single day. We just don't really know it. But often, we ignore spirituality. We often don't have good rhythms set up to help us to be more obedient to Christ or to follow Christ on a consistent basis. A lot of us have rules of life for our health, for our career, our finances. Think about it. most people, a lot of people, you have a financial planner. You might be planning, what am I going to do with my 401k? I'm planning for the future. We do that. Most of us have a rule of life for dentistry. Like it or not, most of us go to the dentist twice a year. Most of us get a physical once a year. Most of us will follow up with the doctor if they're like, hey, you got to come back. We do that. We have different rhythms that we do in our life. We have a rhythm for when we get our oil changed in our car. We have a rhythm for when we get a tune-up in our car based on mileage. We have a rhythm for when we get our furnace checked out. We have all these rhythms that we do in our life. Why? Because regulate helps us to be more effective. And it prevents things from breaking down. I have my furnace checked every year. Why? To regulate it, to set up a rule to make sure it's working so it's not going to surprise me in the middle of winter and it breaks down. I go to the dentist for the same reason. The therapy over that one. 
Why are dentists the most expensive thing? That's another subject. Yeah, Lori right there. She's doing an altar call. So on the point is that we develop rhythms in our life for everything. Part of discipleship is identifying what rhythms do I need to do in my life to put Jesus first and center. That's why as we talk about the future of the church, we talk about what our modern family will look like, we're going to identify different practices that we should do on a daily basis or a seasonal basis. For one, prayer. Is prayer part of your life? Is reading the Bible part of your life? Is the fellowshipping with other believers part of your life? What are things that need to be part of our life to help us to grow in our relationship with God? And I think the most important thing that you can think about of a rule of life, it's about peace, it's about joy to encourage you. It's not about creating a bunch of rules so you feel bad about yourself. It's creating rhythms that are going to help you be successful. It's better at talking about things that you want to do instead of saying things I'm not going to do because we know how that goes. R rhythms of life is just helping us to identify things so we can grow in our knowledge of God. We can grow in prayer, grow in community, grow in relationship with other people. That's what we want to focus on. So that's what I'm talking about today, developing a rule of life, developing a rhythm in your life. What rhythms do you have in your life? So I want to close this message just by talking simply about how would you develop different rhythms in your life? Like I said earlier, we all have rhythms in our life when it comes to oil changes and dentistry and follow-up deaths. How do you develop rhythms in your life to really help you follow Jesus? So in your notes, you're going to have a list of about 10 different things. It's a list adapted from Bridgetown Church. Because we all want to have rhythms in our life that are going to help us focus our life centered around Jesus. But we want these rhythms to be fun. I want these rhythms to encourage us. I don't want to wake up and go, oh, I didn't do my rhythm today. No, that's not the point. The point of a rhythm is to help me get in a routine that works well for me, that's going to bring me great enjoyment in my life. And sometimes a rhythm can start out, it's kind of, it can be a little trickier. But we're going to try anyway. So the number first thing you do, pray about it. Holy Spirit, would you lead me to help me develop some rhythms in my life? God is more than happy to answer that prayer for you. Because he wants you focused on him. So the second thing that you do is start small. Very, very small. One of the best reason, biggest reasons why resolutions never work is you start too big. You start small. Where am I right now? Basically, uh, point two and three are the same thing. Where are you right now? Kind of take an inventory of your life. Do you have any rhythms in your life? Psychiatrists will tell you the two most important things that you do in your day that determine the biggest outcome of your day is what's the first thing you do in the morning and what's the last thing you do at night. Those two things will actually have more impact on your life than about anything in your life, according to research. That's usually a good place to start. What's the very first thing you do? What's the last thing you do? Start there. You don't have any rhythms in your life? I would start right there. Don't try to make anything grandiose. I think that's what people do. They say, I don't read my Bible at all, so I'm going to start reading my Bible one hour a day. That's not going to work. Start out with one verse. You don't have a consistent prayer life? No problem. Pray one minute a day. You start small. And see what God's going to do with you in that. The fourth thing is be specific. Write out your plan. For a lot of you that have good 401ks, you probably write out your plan. You probably look over what's going on. Oh, what assets are working well? What's not working well? You look at that. 
And you make changes and modifications to it. Yeah, listen to Lori. The same thing you do kind of with your house value. You kind of watch your house. You, you, you monitor things like that. It's the same thing with monitor the rhythms in your life. Keep a list of things that you do. Do you pray? Do you find time to have Christian community? Do you take time to learn how to forgive other people? Do you take time to deal with your past? I think every single one of us, it doesn't matter where you are in your maturity or where you are in your following of Jesus, you have weaknesses. Every one of us still has a shadow side to us. It doesn't matter if you've been walking with Jesus for, for decades. All of us have a shadow side, meaning that's the part of us that like we try to hide, but it's often there. And sometimes the only thing you can do, your shadow side sometimes doesn't leave. You have to regulate it. You have to make sure it's not getting out of control. Shadow side, as Pete Scazzaro says, shadows are those untamed emotions and behaviors that lie largely unconscious beneath the surface of our lives that constitute the damaged version of who we are. They may be sinful, or they simply might only be weaknesses. Most importantly, they lie concealed just beneath the surface of our more proper selves. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. You raise your hand in your heart. How many of you would say, yeah, I got a little bit of a shadow side? There's things in my side that just lie below the surface. I don't want anybody to know. I spend all my time trying to manage those things. But part of a rule of life is developing community around you to help you in those burdens that you carry. That's why it's specific. Write down things. Write down the things that you're doing and write down things that you want to be doing and your goals. And be prepared to modify your list over time. You know, maybe start out praying one minute a day. Sooner or later, you might be praying hours a day or 10 minutes a day. To see where God takes you on this journey. And the fifth thing is, do less, not more. It's the goal of the rules of life, rhythms of life, to do less, not more. Not to add a bunch more things to your life, but to look at your life and say, how could I find more margin to do the things that are really important and valuable to me? If I take an inventory of my life, what are the things I'm doing that maybe I don't need to do that I could kind of get out? Sometimes rules of life just help you maximize the time you have. Maybe some of you have a long commute. Maybe you use that more effectively. Another thing to do is to consider what is your stage of life and your obligations. Sometimes you might have more obligations that you don't have time. That's okay. Again, rules of life are never to make you feel defeated. Then also consider your personality. Fortunately for me, I'm a three on the Enneagram. I love rules. I love lists. Yeah. What drives Becky nuts? My list. Literally, I thought she was going to get the best husband in the world because I woke up on Saturday morning with a list of things to do. About two years in our marriage, she said to me, would you stop? I hate Saturday mornings because you have a list of everything you want to do. They're in my head now. 
But actually, she's learned. That's kind of good because on that list is everything she doesn't want to do. But that's the idea. Is don't, don't, lean into your personality. Becky's not a list kind of a person. Next thing you do, number eight, upstream and downstream activities. Sometimes we think if we're going to do something, it has to be hard work upstream. No. Figure out what works for you well. It's like swimming downstream. Figure out the things that are easy for you to do. Find out rhythms in your life that you're going to enjoy. And then keep a healthy balance of spontaneity and, uh, and structure. And always remember that your rules of life, your rhythms, are just a working document. I know this kind of part of the message is kind of boring. This kind of sets us up as we're talking about modern family. So we're talking about being a family. We're talking about being a community. We're talking about being authentic disciples of Jesus Christ and helping other people become authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to have rhythms down so we can help other people understand ours. I think sometimes the most important part of me understanding my rhythms is when other people ask me, how do I, how do I become an effective follower of Jesus? I can tell them. Because sometimes I just do things I don't even know. Like I have a morning routine. I, got, I kind of have a workout routine. I really don't even know what it is. But sometimes I sit down and say, okay, really, what is it? If a person wants to know, how do I work through issues in my life? Oh, yeah, this is kind of what I do. Pay attention to the things that you're already doing because I'll tell you what, every one of you already have a rule of life, a rhythm of life going in your spirituality. Kind of pay attention. What is it? And then help make it even better because our goal is to know how to disciple other people. That as we become closer to Jesus, we become more Christ-like, that we can tell people, how did Jesus do in this in my life? Because we want to grow as a community, but I don't want to grow because we did some programs, because we figured out some real attractional things to get to people here. That would be kind of nice, but I really am not interested in just shuffling people from other churches around here because we have the latest and the greatest. You know, I'll tell you, I, I would like more people. But I want to be fun if we had more people that didn't know Jesus and they came to know Jesus because we are actually doing the Great Commission, that we are actually sent out with the power from God to make disciples. That's what I want us to be, a community that goes out and finds people that don't know Jesus. There's a lot in Grand Rapids. But so often church growth is just moving people around. I want to do that. So let me close in prayer. And let's sing a song. If anybody else wants to lead us in prayer, we got a little extra time, we'll pray. But let's pray for the power of God so that we are empowered to actually make disciples. That we take the Great Commission really serious. We take the call to be evangelists really serious. So we are lifelong learners that our lives revolves around Jesus. So Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for calling us here for such a time as this. And I thank you, Lord, that you've called us to be a disciple and to make disciples. But Lord, most importantly, you've called us to a table with you. You've called us to sit down in your presence. Because you want to serve us and show us love and kindness and compassion. And we come before you today, Lord, and we say thank you for that. Thank you for showing us your grace and your mercy. And God, I pray that each one of us here or online or watching later in the week, that our bodies would be a living sacrifice to you. That the behavior that we do during this week, Lord, would be a sacrifice to you and that you would be pleased and it would be an acceptable sacrifice.
God, I pray that you'd purge us from the things that Titus 3, 3 talks about. That, Lord, we would not be defiled in our bodies or our souls or our spirit, but we would be transformed, that we would be renovated so that we are Christ-likeness. That when we go out and we talk to people about who you are, they would see such Christ in us that it would be just unnatural to talk to them about who you are. Lord, may we be a reflection of the servant that Jesus is. Help us to serve people. Help us to be willing to take off our outer outer garments and to stand there like a servant ready to serve. God, I pray for Christ-likeness to be on me and everyone gathered here. God, I pray that we would be a church that makes disciples, not just of people, but also of nations. Would you empower us, God, even as we sing this final song, Lord, that you would move in us, in our hearts, in our lives, so that we would be a church that is known for making disciples. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.